for those of you who have peaked in your programs, you realize probably we're going to actually be covering the parable of the ten virgins. And so to, to go with this, I found a joke about virgins. <laughs> why not? Why not? Only at this church, right? I couldn't find a joke about ten of them, but I did find a joke about two virgins. All right. No, it's a real joke. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. All right. So a 20-something-year-old woman is on the phone and asks her boyfriend to come over and have dinner with her parents. They've been going together for some time, but he hasn't met them yet. Casually, but you know, not too casually, the girl also mentions to her boyfriend that after dinner later, she would like to make love for the very first time. Well, the young man is a, is a little, you know, on edge, but it also is static. But he's never had sex either. And so he takes a trip to the pharmacist to get some condoms. He t well, it could happen, Sharon. It could happen. <laughs> I think there are still 20-year-old virgins. <laughs> okay. So anyway... Now, the pharmacist is very sweet, and the man actually spends almost an hour explaining what he needs to know about condoms and sex, and, you know, the pharmacist is really nice. And so that night, the young man shows up at the girl's parents' house and meets his girlfriend at the door. Oh, I'm so excited for you to meet my parents. Come on in. So the boy goes inside, is taken to the dinner table where the girl's parents are seated, and he immediately offers to say the, the prayer, the blessing. A minute passes, and he's still praying. Ten minutes pass, and he's still praying. Another five minutes passes. Finally, after 15 minutes, the girlfriend leans over and whispers, I had no idea you were so religious. The boy turns back and whispers, I had no idea your father was a pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, all right. Let's, let's bring it down a little bit now. <laughs> we're still going to have some fun later on. So, so we're right in the middle of, of a series. We're using this book of Erwin Seals um, called Learn to Live. And it's kind of, um, I think it's a book maybe unlike any other because it actually uses the parables of Jesus that you'll find in the New Testament and completely interprets them for us in the light of what we believe in the New Thought Movement. So it's no more... Um, um, well, a couple things come to mind. First of all, it's not really telling you how, what to think. So often our early experiences of the Bible might have been someone like me wearing a blue shirt and a tie, standing up on a podium and telling, here's what you need to think about this in the Bible. And what is so wonderful about this book is it's really giving us tools so that if we wish to reread Scripture, we have our own understanding and can use our own tools for approaching it. So it's kind of a completely different way about going, about reading Scripture. And, and it's kind of fun. So if you, if you haven't seen this book before, I recommend it. It covers um, all of the parables that Jesus taught in the New Testament. So this series we're calling Ancient Wisdom, and what I'm doing is I'm picking out some of my favorite of the parables, including the ten virgins, and, uh, and we're going to be exploring them in light of, of what we teach here in New Thought. Okay, so let's move on with our virgins. And what I've done, well, Sharon, I can't help it. It's, that's what the parable is about. All right. All right, so first of all, we'll read it. So the parable of the ten virgins. 
This is from Matthew 25, verse 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. Now the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. However, the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both you and us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Okay, now as we talked about last week, there are kind of three levels, the three tools I'm going to give you for interpreting Jesus' parables. And the first one, of course, is you do have to have at least a rough idea of the literal meaning of, of the parable. And for that, we're going to have to roll back the centuries a little bit here. And uh, I don't think any one of us here was around in Jesus's time. But if you were, one of the things you would have noticed right off is that women had no place, I mean zero, visible place in society. They were not allowed legally to own land. They were not allowed legally, well, according to religious and prevailing laws, to actually even hold a job. Now think about what that would be like. If you were a young woman, think about this. Your only prospect, if you will, your only uh, way of moving forward in life is either to be a servant girl and die a maiden or to become married. There really were not any alternatives other than abject poverty and begging in the streets. And so when we look at something today, like polygamy, it has a very different flavor than it did 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, there were even laws to protect women by making sure they were available to be married. So, a crazy example, if, if a man died, his wife would be remarried to his brother by law at that time. And this, you might think, well, this is just crazy talk. And, and of course, according to today's society, it would be crazy talk. And yet, it was a kind of social welfare. It was a way of ensuring that women weren't out on the street having to beg for alms. And so it's not, um, if you have stories of that time, it's not unusual at all that there, someone might have many wives and it actually might be a symbol of the charity of that man to take in maybe a maiden aunt, to take in, you know, a, a friend of his might have died with young daughters, to actually take them in and make them part uh, of, of his family by marrying them. And so many of these weren't marriages in the, think, in the way we think of them today. They were marriages as, as a part of a social welfare system. 
Okay, so that's, the, that's something you have to keep in mind, part of the, the literal nature of this. But I will say that even someone 2,000 years ago, like Jesus, telling this story would have gotten a laugh out of it. And that's because, I mean, like who would be marrying 10 women at one time, right? So the idea from the beginning would have actually been humorous. So, so the idea here actually was humorous. And the underlying message on the literal plane is simply that you need to be prepared. If you want, if you're expecting something good to happen, in this case, the marriage, you need to be prepared for it. You can't be asleep at the switch. You need to come with, uh, with all of your, uh, your oil and your lamps ready, right? That literally, uh, uh, of course, the lamp and the oil representing truth in this sense, you know, you need to be prepared for what you want to have in the world or opportunities will pass you by. So in the literal sense, this is simply about opportunities might pass us by if we're not prepared. Okay, now as we know, next up is the metaphysical or the metaphorical translation or interpretation of that. And I want to start by reading a, a short segment from in here and then giving some examples. So here's what Erwin Seal says about the parable of the ten virgins. Our senses are called virgins because they're feminine. They are feminine because they're impressionable. They are receivers. So sight and hearing, taste and touch and smelling are movements of our mind which receive impressions from our surroundings. Our personal and individual mind is nothing more or less than the sum of its impressions or sensations. Thus, it is important what those impressions the mind is made of. And then he goes on to say, the five outer senses are the foolish ones because they receive only the impressions of the material world. They gather impressions of danger, failure, disease, hurt, old age, suffering. They also report happy things on occasion, but these reports are usually a mixture of good and evil. And so we interpret metaphorically this to be our outer senses versus, or in contrast to our inner senses. And we're going to talk about the inner ones in a minute. But I want to tell you a story that really put um, kind of into relief my own idea of how our outer senses work. So I worked for the telephone company for many years, and probably about 15 years ago, our division, we, we were the ones madly inputting things into computer systems, like when we're also talking on the phone and doing three other things at once. And our division, for whatever reason, was up for an award for our accuracy. We, we you know, bungled fewer of those orders than, than anyone else in 14 states, and so they were going to reward us. And it was a lovely reward, I thought. They, they, um, they chartered the, is it called the Portland Spirit, I think, that's out on the river. And we had a whole afternoon on the Portland Spirit. And it was a day in the spring just like this. Well, okay, so I'm an Oregonian. I know how to bring a raincoat along. And it was a lovely day, even out on deck. A little chilly, but, but you could see along the, the banks of the river trees in bloom. I finally got to, to see that Sovie's Island isn't an island in the usual sense, but really kind of a circular cove and it was so cool and um, about halfway through the cruise you know we came down for lunch and they had made kind of a fun picnic lunch with potato salad and hot dogs and hamburgers and baked beans and you know it was just a fun day and then coming back 
um, those of us who stayed down below, they had a pianist to, to play Debussy. And it was, I mean, it was beautiful, kind of looking through the, the rain out the window and hearing Debussy playing and just visiting with friends. And, you know, to this day, it was probably one of the nicest sensual, and think about it, because it was using all of my senses from, from taste and sight and sound, and, and, and it was really a magical time for me. It was on a Saturday, and, uh, and, and I was kind of looking forward to coming in on Monday uh, to talk about it some more. So what do you think I heard on Monday morning? How awful the cruise had been. <laughs> that it was cold and wet, and that you'd have to be crazy to have been out on deck because you would have frozen to death. They thought that we had been dishonored because they'd served us picnic food instead of something a little nicer. Oh, and by the way, the food was nearly poisonous between the white breads and the nitrates and, and the mayonnaise and the salad. And are they trying to kill us or reward us? Okay, now I ask you, did we go on different cruises? <laughs> It seemed like we had, but my interpretation, my sense of what had happened that day was pure joy. I mean, literally, it's something that I remember still to this day. And yet I would say roughly, of the hundred people on that boat, I would say roughly half of them had had a miserable time, given the exact same sights and senses and smells and tastes. This is the danger in our complete reliance on our so-called outer senses, right? Because what are they? No more than an input into our brains. And our brains take those outer inputs and do whatever they will with them. For the people who didn't want to be outside, you know, they got to magnify that perhaps and turn it into a really miserable outing. To the people who maybe were being particularly health conscious, you know, they got to magnify the idea of what that meal was going to do in their bodies and suddenly the meal was, you know, nearly like poison. For those of us who were prepared to have a good time and had brought a raincoat because it's Oregon and we're natives, you know, we were prepared to have fun no matter what the weather brought. And by gosh, we did. This is what our outer senses brings to it. it it's kind of a mix, right? It's some of the good stuff. It's some of the bad stuff. And what it really is, is just the stuff. And it is we who interpret the good or bad. It is we. It is our brain that does the judging of it all. All right, now let's move on to the inner senses. You might be saying, well, okay, now, are you getting real strange here? Exactly what are inner senses? And yet, in our typical day-to-day -day speech even, we do have words for these things. Our inner sight is insight. Our inner hearing is listening with the heart. Our inner touch is the compassion that we feel when we are touched by something that we run across. Our inner taste and spell are our gut reactions, our, our instinct and our intuition. These are the ways that we have our own impressions of what's going on in the world that sometimes is quite the opposite of what our senses tell us, right? Haven't we all intuitively known the answer to a question despite all evidence to the contrary. 
you know, I, I think we have all met someone that we instantly liked, even though maybe some of our friends said, oh, you got to watch out for her. She's a little squirrely. She's a little strange. She's a little whatever. And your gut reaction says, no, this person is wonderful. And they are. I think we've all had one of those senses where, um, where our insight uh, was able to bust through barriers that would have kept us trapped otherwise. I often hear the story of Thomas Edison, who tried over 500 filaments before he was able to come up with the tungsten filament that, that we still have in many of the lights in this room that'll allow illumination to take place. Now, if Edison would have gone purely with his senses, right? It would have been failure number one, failure number two, failure number three, failure 307, three, failure th three, 308. You know, who would have persisted in the face of what their absolute outer senses were telling them of abject failure at creating a light bulb? Would anyone here would have gone to those lengths to wait for the, I can't remember, but it was in the 500s. It was like the 512th um, you know, material that he used to run electricity through before it would persist for more than just a few seconds. These are us when we are able to see beyond what our eyes tell us, to feel beyond what our senses bring to us, to hear an inner truth beyond what might be on the outside of things. In the parable, the bridegroom represents our good. The bridegroom represents the best possible outcome. The bridegroom here represents everything that we could wish and dream for. And so often, if we're just using our outer senses, the facts of things, if you will, we will give up hope we will end up concluding it's not for me. I'm not going to get a job that I'm happy with. I'm not going to find a partner that really loves me, right? Am I not making sense here? So often, our eyes, our ears, it's not that they're lying to us, but it allows us so easily to make conclusions that are unfavorable to our heart, that will make conclusions that are unfavorable to our actual outcomes. Here's how Erwin Seal talks about the, uh, the wise virgins. He says, The mind needs its inner perceptions of truth in order to see its way to the ideal or the good life. And that is why the mind of the kingdom of heaven is likened to the five wise virgins who are well stocked with oil. They have light. They can see. They can make their way easily to the house where the bridegroom is. The mind which knows the creative power of thought and the corresponding impotence of the material world has the oil to sustain its hope and its progress until it arrives at its goal. This is the wisdom of the inner senses. This is the wisdom of insight and inspiration. This is the wisdom of really being able to hear something with compassion, to put your own self in the shoes of another person, to really understand what's going on, not just based on what someone has told us or even sometimes what our eyes portray to us, but to see more clearly through love, to see more clearly through truth and hope and peace. 
So what is the metaphysical meaning of the ten virgins? Is just to not solely rely on our outward senses, but also to pay credence, to really listen to what's going on on the inside. All right. Now there's three levels of an interpreting a parable. We've, we've done the first two. We've covered the literal. We've covered the metaphorical or metaphysical. The next one is the personal level. Now we're going to do this actually in an exercise in the afterwards program today. So I hope those of you who aren't doing the lunch bunch or don't have other commitments, I hope you'll stay because we're actually going to use the parable of the ten virgins to work on, on a problem or an issue facing us individually in afterwards. But, but so that you can um, like go home with stuff, um, I want to tell you just, just kind of that, the, ba- the basic outline of how to do this. To interpret these personally, take every character in the parable, even some of the inanimate objects, and pretend it's you. So how are you like the wise virgins? How are you, and where in your own lives, are you able to really perceive the truth? How are you able to look beyond maybe uh, appearances and see the truth or the goodness in a situation anyway? How are you able to uh, have a cold day out on the river and see something that is beautiful and really transform it in your own mind to something that is uplifting and beautiful? How are you like the wise virgins? But then I also ask you to consider how are you like the foolish virgins? Virgins, Are there places in your own life where you totally overlook the truth and go with outward appearances only? Are there places in your own life where you maybe ignore that inner voice that says, maybe you should try this. Maybe you should study this. Maybe you should give this a go, even though it seems a little bit frightening. Maybe you should step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Because I know that many of us have that voice sometimes, and we go to that place of fear and absolutely disregard it. This is putting you in that place of foolishness from your own heart, from your own life, from being able to reach and attain your own goals. And even go one step further. How are you like the bridegroom? How are you your own opportunity? So often we also think of opportunity as something that's out there, right? It has to be presented in a certain way. And then we go, oh my God, there's my opportunity. As though it's full blown and laid out before us on the banquet table. But I want to suggest that more often than not, we can be our own opportunity. We can be our own bridegroom. We can make things happen in our own lives through our own ability of loving ourselves and sticking to what our goals are with enough vim, with enough uh, just assuredness that it's going to happen. We can make our own opportunities. Another one that maybe isn't obvious in here, but how are you, in fact, even the own oil in your own lamp? Think about this one. The, The oil, the lamp is that symbol of truth, that symbol of illumination, that symbol of kind of burning away the falseness, the darkness, and the fear. Oftentimes, again, we think that happens from without. We think that our friends or our family or our partner keeps us safe, right? And that's true as far as it goes. But you know what? Safety is from within, right? We might be in an environment where it's 
easy to feel safe, but we're the ones, we are our own light in that sense. We're the ones that actually create those feelings. No one does it to us. No one can make us feel safe and secure. No one can make us feel adventurous or you know whatever it is we want to feel. We are the own, our own lamp and we are the oil that goes in it. So this is how, very simply, you can work through any of the parables in the Bible. And it's amazing, because they all sound, uh, to begin with, they all sound uh, kind of fanciful, kind of crazy, and, and if you don't read up a little bit on the history of them, they can seem outright outrageous, right? But if you put yourself in the position of all of the peoples and places and things in each parable, you can see that it has that ability to open our own hearts. It has that ability to speak to us on that subconscious level where we can learn something new about ourselves and something about the world. So these particular parables are considered to be the kingdom of heaven parables because in, in almost all of them, somewhere Jesus will say the kingdom of heaven is like, you know, in this case, like the wise virgins. What he's saying is that heaven is available for us right here and right now. It is for us to experience heaven right here on this planet, right here in this time that we have together if we have the eyes to see, the inward eyes, the insight, if we have the ears to hear, that inner voice, if we have that inspiration to live our own life in joy, in love, in peace, in abundance, then heaven is right here. So I'd like to close today with a, a quote from Ernest Holmes, the founder of uh, Religious Science, and a prayer. First the quote, he says in Lessons in Spiritual Mind Healing from 1943, he actually summarized this idea of, of our outer sensations versus our inner impressions. And he says, we are not to think of the physical senses as opposed to truth or reality. The impression received by the average person is absolutely true so far as it goes. It is not, however, the objective experience, but our subjective reaction to it, our interpretation of it, which matters. So let us pray. There is one power and one presence in this universe. It is God. And God is, yes, the outer things that we sense. It is the trees, the flowers, the, 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 um, the river, the coldness. It is all of these things. But God is also that inner awareness. God is the inspiration, the insight, the hearing from the heart. All that we hold dear is God in form as well as in idea. And as this is a general statement, I know it's true about me. I know that I hear from that place of integrity and love. I know that I can see with great insight. I know that my life allows me to have intuition and inspiration wherever I go. This is my life. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room, that each person here has that ability and that willingness to open themselves to a greater degree and use of their inner senses. Not to throw out the old ones, the outer senses, but rather to have them together in perfect harmony, painting the full picture of joy, of peace, of happiness, to paint the full picture of each person here as a powerful co-creator of their own lives. And I am simply grateful for this. 
Grateful always for the inspirational words from Scripture. Grateful to be in the presence of each person in this room as the face of God. And so I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.